This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Minding Creative Minds is a comprehensive well-being and support programme available 24-7. Specifically designed for the Irish creative sector, including professionals in the film and TV industry. Experience peace of mind knowing that a skilled team of trained counsellors and psychotherapists are at your disposal. They provide medium-term intervention and expert guidance on managing day-to-day challenges that often lead to anxiety and stress. Discover the valuable assistance Minding Creative Minds offers by visiting mindingcreativeminds.ie today. Take the first step towards enhanced well-being in your creative journey in confidence. Hello there, and welcome to this latest episode of our industry film and TV podcast, Film Network Ireland Rap Chat. I'm your host, Remy Michelle Clark. As always, we are excited to bring you exclusive interviews with some of Ireland's top filmmakers, actors, and industry insiders for a varied and exciting look behind the scenes of what it's actually like to work in the film and TV industry across all departments on the island of Ireland. Rap Chat is available on Headstuff Plus, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your audio content relating to film and TV. Today, we welcome the wonderful writer, voiceover artist, actor, and corkman, Gavin O'Connor, to our show. Why not consider becoming a supporter of Film Network Ireland on buymeacoffee.com forward slash FNI and sign up to become a member so you can benefit from all sorts of little extra perks like tickets for screenings, tickets to our meetups, discounts and so much more. You can find out more about us on social media on Facebook and Instagram on at Film Network Ireland and on the Twitter machine at FNI underscore film. So sit back, relax, grab a cuppa and let's get the camera rolling. This is the FNI Rap Chat podcast and we're here to celebrate Irish film and the people who make it possible. doing thanks Remy thanks for having me I'm good I'm good I'm enjoying the weather good yeah I see you're wearing shorts today yes obviously you're going to comment on my legs being so white they nearly blinded people on the way in but <laughs> I did I had my sunglasses on so I was actually okay <laughs> well you could at least have factor 50 on well then you're fine <laughs> we don't all have sallow skin like you Remy well that's true but Gavin uh you and your lovely pasty legs can you tell me what is your origin story well, and to uh, kind of be clear about what I mean here, if you could think of yourself as a Marvel character for a second, <laughs> just imagine Gavin as Marvel character. 
what were the reasons and, you know, the series of events that led up to you choosing to become an actor? Actually, uh, very clear. Um, I was in UCC doing a degree in English and psychology and I was very, very young. I went to I went to college at 16, so I was graduating at 19 and all my contemporaries, all my friends, had a very, very clear idea of the paths that they wanted to take. And a friend of mine, Deirdre McCarthy, who's now the head of current affairs at RT, um, at the end of my degree said, you really need to pursue acting. This is what you were born to do. And uh, I wasn't sure and I was kind of... She said, look, there's a, a drama degree in Trinity and you should really go and audition for the, the pure acting course. So she helped me with two audition pieces. Um, one was Marullis from Julius Caesar and the other one was uh, Billy Lyre. Would you believe Jamie Hawkins? I remember that. But uh, I went up and auditioned thinking there wasn't a hope in hell that I was going to get in here because you had people from all over the country coming who were far more down the line than I was and they were coming from the um, student drama festivals and they'd won gold medals and I was, I was quite daunted by the prospect actually but uh, I don't know why but they, they picked me and I got in and maybe they saw a rawness maybe that I wasn't as polished as some of the others Um, so then I went to Trinity and I studied uh, drama in Trinity which was <laughs> a culture shock as you can imagine I actually texted Lenny Abramson during Normal People and I said you've literally captured some of my life here with Connell going to Trinity it was that's what I was totally fish out of water I was a fish out of water I was the centre forward from Cork coming up and everybody was talking about philosophy and Nietzsche and going to the Philosoph and all these things you know I'd be I'd had the college experience but if I hadn't had that and come straight from school I think I would have been absolutely dwarfed by the experience but um Lenny then said, yeah, he said, you went in as Connell, but you came out as Marianne, <laughs> which was a great line from Lenny, to be fair to him. Yeah. Um, so I found my feet eventually, and I knew that this is what I wanted to do. I, I loved it. I just loved acting. I just felt like I kind of came alive when I did it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I worked I worked really, really hard in Trinity, like way more than UCC. UCC, I was, I was too young. I was just enjoying the experience more than the academic side of it. Mm -hmm. But then when once I got to Trinity... I just went, right, this is what I want to do. And I focused. And then um, I nearly got into trouble. I nearly got kicked out of Trinity because I uh, secretly auditioned for a Disney film when mm. before my graduation. And word got back. And they said that if you uh, if you go for the, the Disney audition, that you may not be able to graduate. And I said, well, surely that's the whole point of the course, right? That, yeah. You know, this is... This is what we're, we're, we're aiming at. This is the ambition. But I did it. I didn't get it. But uh, it was a, a director called Brian DeSalvo, actually. was uh, He was doing The Crucible with us. And I was playing Danforth in The Crucible. And um, from that then, my origin story was my first audition out of drama school um, was for a local company lonesome by Pat McCabe mm -hmm. uh, for the lead role. And myself and Flora Montgomery um, played lovers in it and uh, it was set in Monaghan so I was this tearaway who'd just come out of prison and um, Pat McGrath was in it you know lovely Pat lovely mm -hmm. actor um, and it was directed by Joel Byrne so Joel actually gave me my first break so my first walk onto a stage in Dublin professionally was in the Olympic Theatre on opening night of Dublin Film or Dublin Theatre Festival and you know obviously Taoiseach President everybody there Thing. Wow. The uh, the flat went back. There was a guy um, from Cornwall called Simon who used to pull back the flat and I used to walk on like a bloody cowboy. And then he goes, all right, my little free coat, Wanda, girlfriend, 
which apparently was the line we used to say to the uh, Rolling Stones. So I jumped on the stage and sat um, and s- jumped onto a bench in an abattoir and sang uh, Fulsome County Blues by Johnny Cash in my first ever scene in professional acting life on the stage. What an opening. What an opening. Nearly shit myself. But anyway, <laughs> you know, it's... But- Sorry, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, no, but I, I mean, I remember standing there looking at this wall of people, you know, as a very, very young actor and going, like, gulped. I actually physically gulped and went, am I ready for this? And I just went, okay, fuck it, let's go for it. Let's mm. just go for it. Can we curse? Uh, I don't know, but yeah. Feck it. <laughs> <laughs> let's, get, let's go for it. So I just went for it and I just tore into it. And um, theatre then was, was a passion for a number of years and I was very lucky I got to play the gate I got to do Borsal Boy with uh, the wonderful and much missed and much loved Tom Murphy mm-hmm. um, that had a great cast in it I mean Mark O'Halloran was in it Stuart Townsend um, great great time um, with Neil Tobin as well so the reason I got the part actually um, I was actually invited down to my old school to give a talk recently and I told them the story about Neil Tobin um, came to see me in a show in, in the Abbey his daughter Sheila had been the ASM on it and uh, he goes uh, where are you from and I said I'm from Cork he goes I know that he goes what the hell and I said uh, I said uh, I went to the man and he goes alright and then he um, set up a meeting with Joe Dowling and I got cast in Borsal Boy basically immediately because of Tobin which was I suppose nepotism but well if, if I knew yeah. him it was nepotism. Cork nepotism it was Cork nepotism it was favouritism let's yeah. call it that probably okay. not nepotism but uh, yeah, so I did theatre for a while um, and then I kind of, I got to, uh, I started to do some films in and around 96, 97, got mm. to do stuff like um, This Is My Father with uh, Aidan Quinn and James yeah. Cahan and stuff like that. Um, wonderful experiences and I've always been passionate about film. Now I love theatre, I absolutely adore uh, theatre, but you couldn't make a living out of it. I remember mm. coming out of the Abbey Theatre one time and I was... Um, I was rehearsing upstairs for the main stage and I was downstairs doing a show on the Peacock but you get paid the same whack so you don't get paid double bubble and I remember cashing a cheque and after tax and agents fees walking away with like less than 200 quid Mm. for two shows in the National Theatre and I mean it's changed now obviously and they get paid a a lot better but um, I remember going I don't think I can survive this life It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's too hard you know Yeah. so I segued consciously into film and television and mm. that's where my life has kind of been since except yeah. for a few times I've kind of made forays back onto the stage yeah so that first play then that you did with Pat McCabe yeah um Loco County Lonesome that was in the 90s which you know was million, actually million nearly ago. 30 years ago not yeah. 10 years ago which we kind of think in our heads so that's you being in the acting game for nearly 30 years now yeah and you know you've as you said, you kind of moved towards film and television from your love of theatre. Mm. And that was kind of where you've been working primarily since. But, you know, acting is a tough industry to persist in. Mm. So what do you think has contributed to your longevity as an actor? I, 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 a few things. Uh, luck, obviously, plays a massive part. And people underestimate that. I mean, luck is huge in this game. Um, I had a plan. And my plan when I was in my late 20s was I wanted to see what London was like. I wanted to see what Los Angeles was like. And I went and lived in both. And it didn't work out for me. It didn't work out at all. I mean, uh, like not that I felt flat in my face, but 
it was hard. It was a struggle. And I had gone from an established place here where I was working, you know, quite a bit. I wouldn't say all the time, but quite a bit. And I gambled and I went just to see what it was like. But then at the end of it, I went, okay, I don't want that. And I knew before I hit 30 years of age that I didn't want that for my life. And good luck to anybody who does and more power to them, but it wasn't for me. So I knew before I hit 30 that I wanted to live in Dublin. I wanted to buy a home. I wanted to have a family. I wanted, you know, normal things that normal people do. And um, I came back from Los Angeles and um, focused on, so what's the game plan? How can, how can you make a living out of this? And one of the things, and you know, something we share in common is um, I discovered that I have a voice for, for radio. And um, I did a couple of demos and I got involved in a couple of cartoons and everything else. And um, Voice Bank, Deborah at Voice Bank, um, I sent her in a, a reel and, and she took me on. And that has been, you know, it, it, it's never going to be your main income, but it's a fantastic subsidiary income um, to back up what you're doing as an, as an actor and as a writer. And I've been so fortunate, so blessed that that's been in my life, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it can be such a challenge as an actor and creative of any type, really, to make a living in this industry. Yeah. And uh, we have to spin a lot of plates mm. and it can be really, you know, it's a whole other side of it. You know, the business side, because when you are a creative or an actor and, you, you know, you have agents and things like that, but you kind of stand for yourself you as really well. Do. And you kind of have to, because if you expect other people to do all the legwork for you, you'd probably be waiting by the phone for mm. months and months and months and it's gathering dust. So developing that business aspect of yourself is really important. Mm. And also on top of that, I feel, you know, you started off with your psychology and English degree. Do you think that your knowledge of psychology and your ability to really engage with people and be a people person has also contributed to your success and your ability to continue? I'm not sure about the psychology part of it, but I'm definitely an extrovert. I'm definitely an outgoing person. I love people. I love meeting people. Um, and I've formed some fantastic relationships in this business in, in the, like Paul Ellis from McConnell's, for instance, mm. you, you would know. I am still uh, in touch with yeah. him. Yeah. So when I joined Voice Bank, I was walking down Haddington Road and Paul Ellis is this legendary figure in advertising, as you, as you know. With the glasses. With the glasses. He was standing outside Smith's and I get a whistle across the road and he goes, come over to me, you. I said, right. He says, have you joined Voice Bank? And I said, yeah. And uh, he said, well, I'm going to look after you. And I said, don't bullshit me now, Paul. I said, like, because, you know, mm -hmm. you don't want to get carried away. But like, you'd be buying a house five seconds later as an actor. You know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, the following week, he called me in to take over from Donald McCann, who had died as the voice of Ballygong. Mm. Then after that, he got me in for um, ESB. And I think then O2. Mm. And I was up and running within a month. And this was literally because this guy had went... You know, yeah. I like you and, you know, I think I can work with you. And I like the cut of your jib and I like of, your shorts. And he gave me a, yeah, stop going on about the shorts when you're in front of the bloody listeners are going to think I have two <laughs> twigs for legs. But uh, I've actually lovely legs. <laughs> Footballer's legs. <laughs> You've got lovely legs. <laughs> stop flirting with me about my legs. But anyway, um, so Paul Ellis gave, gave me a shot. And I remember when I got married, Paul was at my wedding. And I said to him when I walked over, and I had a couple of jars, of course, on my, my wedding day. And I said... I don't think I'd have been able to buy a house if it wasn't for you because you literally got the ball rolling. And uh, I have so much to be grateful to him for, actually. Huge, huge amount to be... And, you know, and this is the thing about this career. Remember at the time the people who give you your shot mm -hmm. 
and people have. Um, in film and telly, I, like, so Frank Berry, for instance, mm-hmm. like, I've worked with Frank, like, four or five times. Um, you know, Stuart Carlin, David Caffrey, you know, all these people, like, just been hugely instrumental in my career and have gone, you know what, I like what you're doing, I'm going to give you a shot. And then, you know, obviously become friends with them and you have relationships going forward. But I think that's really important in this career is, is to be grateful for the people who give you a bit of a break because who knows where it's going to lead to, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And again, that kind of comes back to the relationship side of things and, you know, not so much the psychology, as you mm. say, but, you know, that ability to connect with people so easily that you have, you know, um, your extrovert nature and being able to make friends. Mm. And, and that's fantastic. I, I, but I love people. I, mm-hmm. I love people. I think that kind of feeds into being an actor as well. I, I think that, like, you're not sitting studying people, but you're always, you're always absorbing. Mm-hmm. There's always something going in you know um, even with the writing which we'll get to in a minute I, I actually was walking down here going what ha- have I read or seen recently that has interested or has influenced stuff that I've written I so during lockdown I mean I was up on um, Mount Street in uh, Moynihan Russell yeah doing a voiceover for the government and I was reading and the text I was reading was frightening and I looked to your man and I just went is this as bad as uh, as what I'm saying here and he said you will not be in the studio for a year if not two and I nearly I nearly lost my life I was like I've got a young child I've got a mortgage I've got a wife I've got you know and um I went home straight away and I got on to Tommen like actually have the same reflector shield I do have up there um got on to Tommen in um in Germany and ordered all the gear and literally turned uh, the spare room at home into a kind of a, a working studio and that's how I, I managed to um, navigate lockdown you know mm-hmm. um, and then um, I had this I had this so writing wise just to give you a bit of background I I've always loved writing but I, I, I think I hung around with a lot of writers when I was in my early 20s who were so unbelievably talented like Dave Hannigan Dennis Walsh Paul Howard all these guys are just brilliant, brilliant writers, like multi-award winning writers, we all know who they are. Um, and I think because of what they were doing, I lacked the confidence to explore that side. And it mm. took me a while to get going. Yeah. So what happened was I had an idea for a short film and it, it was kind of swirling around in my head and I, went, I woke up bolt upright at uh, two o'clock in the morning at home and Rebecca went, Jesus, what's wrong with you? And I said, I have, I have the idea, I know what it is. She goes, go downstairs and write it. So by 7 a.m. it was finished. And not a syllable of that script changed. Um, so that short was called Blink. And um, we ended up just, just I mean, you send it out to film festivals, you hope one of them will yeah. buy it or whatever. But luckily for us, uh, one of those was the Montreal World Film Festival. And it was nominated in the world competition. Wow. Because it was like 9,000 films entered. So wow. we got that recognition and, and that kind of, you know, give a little bit of a cachet towards, you know, you can do this, you know, you yeah. can, you, and that was self-financed. So yeah. there, there was no public money available for that. Um, so that got the ball rolling. And then after that, um, I wrote a very, very personal film called While You Were Gone about um, two strangers who meet at a, at a, group, uh, a group bereavement counselling session. And they're the only two people in the room who can't articulate their grief. 
And within the silence, they begin to find each other. Mm -hmm. And they go off on this journey of healing and discovery. And the juxtaposition is their lives are crumbling even further down around their ears. But um, about two thirds of the, uh, the way through, there's this massive twist. And we find out why these two stars have collided in orbit at this particular point in time. And it's a kind of a race to the finish to see if they can repair their lives or never be in each other's lives again. Mm -hmm. Which is a hugely, hugely personal film, which I would... I think I'd love to direct it actually at some point because um, I have directed uh, ads and stuff before. But um, And then I got back to writing during lockdown because, yeah. you know, you know this. I mean, you might get one, two, maybe three voiceovers and that's it for the week and you're doing the homeschooling and you're doing everything yeah. else. And I had this idea. I remember my best pal saying to me in 1999 in Toners on Baggett Street that I had told him that I was going to write a film about famine. <laughs> in 99, I was like, how do you remember this stuff? And uh, I sat down, I, I had written the treatment with a, a guy called David Rodham, uh, who's a director in special effects, uh, fantastic guy actually. And um, we went back and visited the treatment and I said, I think I want to write this. And he said, well, go for it. So I started delivering pages every day and he'd mm -hmm. go through with and we'd action them. Uh, and the thing about him is he's a wonderful visuals guy like he would send me the most beautiful art the most beautiful and then he sent me the most beautiful books of poetry like Richard Hugo and stuff and unbelievable he'd send you uh, you need to watch this film by Vaclav Maroul called The Painted Bird and he'd send you a link and he'd have paid for it and he's like and he's just he's just cramming you full of these wonderful visual images that yeah. will infuse your work and it ended up then um, so it's called Blight and it's it's about the famine and it's it's a very contained picture about a community. It's not the epic, sprawling whole of Ireland story. Yes. It's one community which serves as a metaphor for the community at large and for the whole of Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, so finished that, sent it out into the world and got some amazing feedback. But the feedback in general was, they're not going to give you $20 million to do this off, mm -hmm. off the bat. You need to make something first, first that's yes. got a lower budget, that's a bit more containable and, and filmable. So uh, I've always wanted to write a Western. So um, so from the Irish countryside to, to the West. The so Wild West. I wrote a Western called um, A Violent Prayer with Dave. Dave was you know, sending me all the, the visuals and the usual. And we have this we have this shorthand, this lovely way of working where it's like, he'll give me this and I'll go ahead and write it. He sent me um, this obscure Eastern European artist. He sent me some visuals. And it became a nightmare of the main character in mm. in this one nightmare that he has in in the throes of a fever. Yeah, I brought that then to life. You know what I mean? But I wouldn't have been able to do it without that. Do you know what I mean? Um, so a violent prayer is about uh, a bounty hunter and a kid on the trail of the Wild West's most notorious serial killer, um, which is loosely based on a true story and it's episodic. So every chapter we meet a new um, displaced, disenfranchised person who is uh, symbolic of the new world crashing into the old world and how America hasn't really changed at all and it's it's a kind of a polemic about that and and also as well it's um it's a kind of a journey into the heart of darkness it's about violence about violence against women in particular it's about racism um so yeah that's uh, that's a violent prayer so that's out there that's um that's with the big American producer um at the moment so we'll, we'll see what happens watching this space uh watching this space, it, it, it is getting quite a bit of attention but again look 
it's no, until we, you yeah. have the contract in your hand it's uh, this age, not even this I even say to people it's like not even that I say when they shout cut yeah I still don't believe it'll happen yeah. but anyway look it's you it, get used to uncertainty don't you in this line of work yeah you know and a lot of uh hopefulness and possibility and sometimes you have these moments of anything could change right now you know mm. my whole life can change if this just works and yeah, then sometimes I mean, often it doesn't and how, how do you kind of come back from that there's people reading this who I mean it's because I mean, it's, let's be honest about it I mean Rodham is currently working on Gladiator too so he's really his right hand man in special mm. effects and he like his contact list is just unbelievable the people that he can get this into their hand I mean James Gray has read it um, you know some yeah. like there's major major you know movie stars have read it and stuff but look again let's not get carried away Let's just be pragmatic and see where it takes us. Um, and then I got commissioned to write a script for the last year and a half, which is a real life story about this boy. It's kind of, it's like Billy Elliot, but about sport. Mm-hmm. It's like a boy from, you know, the this disadvantaged background who overcomes all the obstacles. I mean, mental health, kind of, you know, poverty, um, drugs, every, everything um, to become, you know, this sports star. Um, so that's that's chugging along very nicely. So um, that's going great. So that, that was commissioned uh, by a guy called Damien Barley, uh, who I've been working with, and he's great. I mean, he's so he's an ex former international rugby player. So he's oh, right. driven to the nth degree. I mean, and the great thing about him is he's such a straight shooter. He'll he'll just give it to you straight. There's there's no embellishment there. He's not mm-hmm. worried about your ego. He's not worried about. He's just like this is what I want, and you're like okay. Which is, you know, for me, it's a, it's a new way of working because everything Absolutely. else had come from me, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's so open to interpretation. So when someone is just giving you really strong parameters, it kind of maybe gives you even a bit more freedom in a way. Um, I wouldn't say more freedom, actually. <laughs> Far <laughs> You'd less probably not freedom. thank me for saying it, but uh, I've loved working with him because you always know where you are. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And in this business, you know as well as I do sometimes that's a you, rare it, feeling sometimes you don't know where you are even, yeah. on, even on a set mm. you don't know what a director wants you don't know what the producers expect your you know other even if they verbalise it to you because uh, so much can get lost in translation between what one person says and what another person hears yeah and so it's you know great to have somebody who's giving you really strong direction no I've really really enjoyed working with him and I, I think he's going to do a great job on the picture as well he's done two shorts um which were really, really great shorts. And I, I think he's ready and I think mm. he's ready to go. And um, yeah, he's a, like, just has that great determination, that that singularity of vision that I suppose somebody who was an international rugby player has. You know what I mean? Yeah, so. absolutely. So you have all of these screenplays and uh, at various stages of development. Mm. And you also have your novel Mojo, which is now available on Amazon. <laughs> nice plug. So um, it, writing is not really something that's just a side hustle for you it, it it feels like it's something that you're pivoting more firmly towards all the time would that be a true no estimation? Uh, no I, I i love doing them in tandem i mean i adore acting i love it i love i love playing characters um it's it's something i've i've enjoyed doing for so long and and do you know what this is the great thing i know people bullshit about this and say oh getting old is great in as a man it actually is, and I know there's a terrible imbalance there, and 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 I'm hugely aware of that. But um, you do get to play more interesting guys because they've lived a life, they've mm-hmm. more experience. 
Yeah. Whereas like when you're playing the young buck and you know, sometimes you're just there as, you know, men and women as the eye candy who don't do much thinking. Mm. But when you reach my age, they, they want you to have had a backstory and they want you to have thought about what's going on. And it's funny, I, e- I either get to play the really bad guy or the really good guy. And never in between never. the shades of grey. No. But yeah, so over the years, you've played a number of characters uh, who are based on real life people mm. as well, such as, you know, Sean Doherty, former Minister for Justice in the historical drama Charlie, based on Charlie Hawley's life, uh, alongside uh, Aidan Gillen. Yeah. And you also portrayed Patrick Pierce in mm. The Bloody Irish for PBS. What do you think it is that draws casting directors to cast you in such roles? Funny. Uh, do you want to hear the story about how I got cast as Sean Doherty? Please, let us know. I was in Montreal and I was uh, outside the Cinema Imperial and there were two posters on the wall. One was for Blink, Orphan, and the other one was for A Thousand Times Goodnight by um, uh, Julia Pinoche was in it. Eric Poppel was the, uh, the director. And Maureen Hughes cast A Thousand Times Goodnight. Really? And here we were, our two posters side by side in, you know, and it was a lovely moment. So I took a picture and texted it to Maureen. I got no response. So, <laughs> so I worry what might be telling the story. But after like four or five days, I was going, you stupid bollocks. Why did you do that? Now you're going to look really clunky and cheesy doing that. And then the following day, my agent rang and said, uh, they want to see you for Sean Doherty and Charlie. And I'd already alerted the agent and said, listen, I share some physical similarities with this guy. So uh, there's a chance that I could, you know, at least get seen for it and go for it, whatever. Um, so I came home and learned the script on the flight home and came in and walked from Dublin airport. Well, I got the, uh, a taxi, but I walked literally <laughs> in the door from the airport to meet Kenny Glenan, the director, and Maureen was sitting there and that was she it. She said thanks for that text. She she didn't. She she just was hugely complimentary about where I had been and, and getting so far in the competition and stuff. And... Uh, Sometimes you're right for a role. It's just it's just that you know, it's just that inexplicable thing that you just sometimes you're right, and and I think I was right for that. Mm-hmm. Now, other people could have done a great interpretation of it, but I think in that moment, my age, where I was in my career, and everything else, I think that I was probably the right choice for that. And I can't say that for, for many other times in my life, but for that one, I think I probably was. Yeah. And and like I I worked extremely hard then as well yeah. at getting the look of him right, you know. Yeah, what what draws you to roles like that based on historical figures or even infamous characters, do you think? Um I don't think I don't think a lot of it I don't think it's about being drawn towards it. I think a lot of it is that if the choice comes up and you get a chance to play that, like it's like doing a mini history degree. Mm-hmm. I love history anyway for a start, as you can probably see by you know what I've written. Um I love history and I just think trying to be somebody else who was real, there's no safety net. Mm, how do you go about preparing for a role like that? So, for instance, with uh, with Sean Doherty, there was a couple of fantastic documentaries. There was one by uh, Steve Carson and Mary McCallaghan uh, about uh, um, Charlie and Doherty figured hugely in it. And then John Waters, who you know obviously has gone on to different things since, but he wrote a great book called Jiving at the Crossroads, which was literally a roadmap of how to play Doherty because it was about him. Mm. And all these little things that you would learn. I mean, um, every time I saw a picture of him, he was using his left hand and I'm right-handed. 
Now, I don't know if he's right-handed or left-handed to this day, but I would uh, start practicing with my left hand and change what side I would pick up a phone, open my button, drink my tea, and uh, accent is massive for me. And the Roscommon accent is a very, very peculiar one. Um, but Shane Curran, the Roscommon goalkeeper, I knew. And I was like, out to Shane, go and listen, what's the crack? And, um, and again, this is what I go back and say to you, people are lovely and hugely helpful when you do ask for their help you know um so just study 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 and uh repetition i i keep repeating like i read the script oodles of times like i i read the script nearly every day mm. um and when i'm learning my lines i record them in character into a well at the at the time it was a a dictaphone now it's a, a phone and i i walk around listening to me and seeing what's what can get better what can improve and in terms of look i had to put on weight to play that mm. um no i can't take all the credit here like i mean i went into um uh, was it kathy strachan actually i went in with a folder and i opened it up and i had pictures of doherty you know from from over the years and she said come here and i'll show you something and she had a rack of every suit i had a picture of oh my god yeah i mean that's how good she is wow and then when we went into um, hair and makeup, uh, Denise Watson and uh, I think it was Sandra Kelly, they said, look, let's work on the look. And they were dyeing my hair and everything else. And I actually was the best man at a wedding with a big shock of red hair. <laughs> and everybody looking at me going, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, like what happened to him? But um, in the middle of it. But um, that was, I think that was one of the best acting experiences, as in playing a character of my of my career i i loved every minute like in is sensational in that he's brilliant in it uh tom von lawler is brilliant in it and you know you're going cast well you're going to work with these boys every day you know they're going, they're going to raise your game you know mm. and um aiden and i have since gone on to become you know quite good friends and stuff and um he he's very very generous in a scene you know he he will he'll give you what you need um in character by the way um, so and all my stuff was with Aiden really you know what I mean so yeah. I I loved it I loved I loved the show I loved working with him the process um, I loved the process the director yeah. Kenny Glenan was an absolute superstar a little Scottish bundle of energy coming in like a fucking tornado every morning you know so I loved I loved working with him um, and that that's I suppose that's the creative side of it I, yeah. I love that but I mean there's been other jobs where I've had the crack then you know what mm. I mean Um I was on um, The Alienist in, in Budapest. Yeah. I was walking through Dublin Airport and my phone pinged and it was uh, Peter Coonan, you know, yeah. played Fran in the late. And he says, uh, are you heading to Budapest? And I said, I am. Why? And he goes, I'm in Butler's Come in and have a coffee. Now, if you're going to Budapest for two months. We all know what you're doing. No, I'll tell you. If No, no. If you're going to Budapest for two months, no better man to be hanging in Budapest with than Peter Coonan because he is the loveliest man now he's an exceptional actor and really dedicated to his work but loves going for dinner like mm. me loves going for a swim loves going for the uh, to the baths, the baths. yeah and loves uh, we ended up uh, like playing pick up football with kids in a park and everything you know what I mean just sitting like two locals two locals yeah and so that in terms of so that was Stuart Carlin and David Caffrey had yeah. me on that um, but just to, to spend that time over there with you know, it was like the Irish, the Irish mafia over there. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it was just fantastic. And and Coonan, my God, what a what a legend! He's just the loveliest man. Yeah. And coming back now to your 
characters and the roles you play and mm. how you prepare for them. Have you ever found yourself struggling with your personal feelings about a character that you've had to play before, a character that you've been building? And, you know, whether that's a real life one or a fictional one. And if yes, how would you separate yourself from the characters you portray? The short answer is no. The longer answer is, is longer and more complex. Somebody um, said to me years ago when I was starting um, that when you're playing the antagonist, that you have to find the humanity in them because an antagonist doesn't know that he's a bad person. So you still in character have to know that and believe that what you're doing is true. And I think it was when I was playing Danforth in The Crucible, um, I used to go down to the four courts and study judges every day. And when I had been on the floor rehearsing, it was big and it was, it was, it was a bit oiky, it wasn't great. And then I went down and I studied these guys and these guys, these judges, they were so still and they controlled everything with their voice. And it was just mesmeric to watch. And then I brought that into my character and my character, even though he was hanging people, he thought he was doing the will of God. Mm. So from an audience perspective, yeah, he looks like an evil bastard, but he doesn't think he's evil. So if you start there and then, I mean, you know, you, you work a backstory for your character anyway, you know, but none of that backstory would be, I did this bad thing and then I did that. You're just a person who happens to do bad things or do a bad thing for a living. Like in a recent thing, I had to actually, uh, the long answer is this. I did a show recently where I had to traffic a child as a gangster and when we went into that scene um i was very upset afterwards it did bleed into it did bleed into my life yeah well absolutely it can be so easy for actors to bleed into the characters they create you know whether they're practicing you know the full method approach or maybe just the lack of boundaries between themselves and the character they play uh or even just you know a lack of boundaries in general mm. but would you see yourself as following any one particular discipline in that area, you know, following a method or following a particular technique in acting or, we, you know? I, well, we did study Stanislavski in, um, in college, but uh, I've used various techniques over the years. I mean, fun funnily, we did a thing called animal studies in, um, in Trinity when I was there. And I, I kind of ask myself the question sometimes, what is the character if he was going to be an animal? But... The, the, the short answer is physicality, voice, and then get into the psychology of the character. And maybe this is where the psychology is understanding what this character's, what's his place in the story? Because ultimately you're there to serve the story. I mean, we've seen loads of people who think that they're there for themselves and just, you know, are going to give this knockout performance. And then they go, yeah, but the film is shit. So there's no point in you having a knockout form performance if the film is crap. You have to understand your place within the framework, within the story and connect all those dots. And then you bring it back and you study your character and you go, who am I? Where am I? What am I doing? Where am I going? What do I do to get where I'm going? In every scene. Mm. They're the questions, the fundamental questions that you ask yourself. And if you can answer those questions truthfully as your character, then you're on the right track. Mm. And what do you think has been your standout role in your career so far? Uh, I think everybody would say Doherty, wouldn't they? Mm. I think so. I, I think so. Um, I, 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 Mackin in Taken Down was another one that I, I absolutely loved playing. I, I loved that team, you know. Um, I remember myself and Orla Fitzgerald, you know, Orla Fitzgerald from the Wind of Shakespeare Barley's and yeah. Young Offenders and just wonderful actress. Um, 
Orla's an incredible attitude to the work. So at lunchtime, we'd sit in each other's trailer and work out the scene and work out the relationships between us and stuff. So much so that they were like putting a B camera on us to capture our reactions and stuff, you know, because of the relationship we were creating. Um, what was the first start of that question? Oh, oh, your best role. role. So mm. that role, um, I kind of feel that was the one who got that got away in terms of I would have loved to have seen if it had run a bit further where it, it could have got, uh, gone. Um, the cafe, obviously, David Caffey, dream to work with. And he's a great director. He's, he's, but also to be around his mm. positivity, his energy. He's great fun. But Stuart Carlin is a genius. I mean, there's no other way to... To, to, to describe it he is he's an absolute genius I mean um, I remember him telling me a story of how he was going to follow on with, with, with Taken Down and he just wove this tapestry in a car we were sitting outside today FM and I was going in actually to do a voiceover and uh, he just and I said he started weaving this tapestry it was so complicated that I was you know when you're, you're nearly dwarfed by somebody's intellect mm. I was just looking at him going where the fuck do you come up with this stuff it's incredible uh, and he's I, I he's one of our best I mean he's just a genius I think you know along with Frank Berry who you know I've long since been a, a fan a fan of uh, Lenny Ashling Walsh is somebody I love mm-hmm. uh, Walsh incredible um, yeah it was that that Mackin because he, again he wasn't a bad person but he was taking the shortest route possible to get the job done because mm-hmm. he was jaded by the job yeah. so there were reasons for him doing what he, what he did uh, the one thing I didn't enjoy about it is I had to put on two stone to play it. Um, yeah, well, that's a, a big ask, isn't it, for an actor? It is, and I I was moving really, really differently and stuff, and I, I kind of got sick of it after a while. But I said, look, if we were going again, that I'll be walking into scene one and season two with a gym bag going, hey, everybody, look <laughs> at me, I'm buff. <laughs> <laughs> I just really wanted to, you know, get ready for the summer. Total, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but... Uh, I yeah I loved that I mean we we like so the four cops were Lynn Rafferty Sean Fox myself and Orla Fitz and we had a lovely bond we're still in a in a WhatsApp group we still meet uh, we go to the theatre together and we go you know for dinner and stuff so it was a lovely bunch you know and yeah I would have like COVID obviously happened and everything else I mean everything sort of just shuts down and well, gets put on hold the Alienist was meant to uh, was another one that we were hoping would run but like the world just changed yeah you know and things that you thought you were going to be on for a few years just you weren't anymore and then just filtered away yeah we just uh, we just had to get busy doing other stuff yeah like homeschooling homeschooling and writing and tweeting and tweeting my, my tweet about the homeschooling did you remember that one tell me about it again I said that it may take a village to raise a child but it takes a vineyard to homeschool one <laughs> did that one go viral it did yeah <laughs> that was the, somebody what did somebody say recently in an interview Twitter star Gavin O'Connor <laughs> I was like thanks a million that's great You'll, you'll have that on your tombstone. Yeah, that'll be the eulogy. He was a Twitter star four times in his life. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great feeling, though, when something you tweet goes viral. You kind of feel like, this yeah, is but it. I, the first time it this happened, I, I never turned off the notifications, and my phone was like a bloody, I don't know, a fucking vibrator in my hand going, um, it was uh, when when uh, Margaret Thatcher died, and the hashtag was Iron Lady. And I said, My thoughts and prayers are with Tony Stark at this terrible time. <laughs> Right, so <laughs> the phone went. It was I think it was either Rob Delaney or uh, Daryl Breen or somebody retweeted it. And of course, when somebody was there, mm. you know, following retweets it, 
I think I was mental, but I never had the notifications turned off. I couldn't even get phone calls. The thing was like going for 24 hours. Going, <laughs> oh, it was so funny. But um, yeah, so yeah, Mackin. I loved Mackin. I loved Sean Doherty. Oh, look, come here. I've, I've been, like, I've been really blessed, you know. I, I, I feel really, really lucky. And then, you know, we've got this, you know, I've got this new strand of my career, hopefully heading in the right direction as well, yeah. you know. But probably be back here now next year cleaning the hall or something and you'd be saying what happened to you <laughs> like it's all over well up and down the peaks and troughs I mean it's just normal that the career would go up and down but I feel like we won't see you here with a scrubbing pan and brush well look if soon. you do you do but I mean we'll have to we have to put a, a 12 year old through school so we'll do what we can was there uh absolutely yes and uh so just coming back to what you were saying about, you know, COVID happening and certain things that you thought would just keep going, closing down for a while or, you know, those kind of sparks of promise that can happen in this mm. industry. And then sometimes they don't lead to anything. Is mm. there anything, any role or any potential job that could have happened for you that you really, yeah. really wanted to, yeah, the, to make real? The, the big one in my life was I uh, was down to the last two to play one of the leads in the Wind the Shakes the Barley. Wow. And it was five weeks I was held on. Wow. Um, now, I was a very young man at, at the time, but Ken Loach would have been a hero of mine. Um, I've just loved his, loved his work. I mean, I've loved his work for a long, long time. Um, and I met him three times. And I thought, okay, this is it. We're getting close. And uh, yeah, I got an email. And this, this will tell you how long ago it is. Andrew Street, there was an internet cafe. I had to go and check my email in an internet cafe. Yeah. I. And I opened it up and it was an email. That's 2010 from, carry on, isn't it? 2004, 5. Wow. And there was an email from my agent saying, unfortunately, they went the other way. And I remember coming out onto the street in Andrew Street. The worst phrase that any actor can hear. Oh, I was, I was gutted. I thought I was so right for it. But look, you know, I don't believe in any of that. What's for you won't pass you by or any yeah. of that bullshit. I, I think sometimes you do, you know, actually, you know. Sometimes you just miss out on things. You do miss out. You do. Either they make the wrong decision or you make the wrong decision or, you know, it just didn't work out. That, Which is probably somebody going around time. going, I was in you know, for Doherty or Mackin yeah. and I didn't get it and you got it. So yeah, whenever it, one actor wins the part, you know, there are 20, 30, 40, maybe even a couple of hundred who well, they were close. Well, if you look at our, our gene pool now of actors, I mean, four Oscar nominations. It's fantastic. It's unbelievable. I mean, like, I did, I did a film with Kerry Condon called This Must Be The Place. That must be 18 years ago. Yeah. So Kerry is like, we've all known Kerry has been this talented for forever but now she's really really getting the recognition you know yeah it's this she's golden period for Irish cinema isn't it it's, it's amazing and like you know Paul and Gladiator yeah you know Colin and Brendan Donal Jesus it's just it's just fantastic it really that, that would be the, the dream by the way well yeah for, I was going for, to ask for, you for what would be a dream come true for you career-wise whether it's you know as an actor or as a writer what's on your bucket list okay um as an actor, I want to continue to do interesting roles. I've never really set out to be famous or any of that kind of crack. It's, I don't think it would suit me, for one. Um, what do you think would happen? Um, I think I'd find the constant intrusion a bit a bit much, to be honest, you know. I mean, listen, 
I just like plodding along and get the odd person every now and again when when you've been on the telly the night before go oh listen I saw you last night that's fine that's fine with me but um my dream is for blight to be made and to have a predominant you know there is an English character in it but a predominantly Irish cast of amazing actors that you can go to the world and everybody will know who they are and that will be what sells it because mm-hmm. this is our story I don't think it's been told before I don't I, I know Ruan Mangan did an amazing documentary I don't know if you saw it um, that Liam Neeson narrated just incredible work but I don't think we have told this in a film in a dramatic film yet and I wonder are we still ashamed but maybe the time is right now to mm. go you know that we've we've come we've come through it we've come through it and we're okay and we're doing well and we're we're fighting on a world stage but this is our story this is our backstory and this is the reason why people are in the four corners of the earth mm. from Ireland yeah is because of this period of history yeah and I would love to show that film to the world and, and have it an international film I don't want it to be a small Irish film that's seen you know in in a few cinemas I want this to be big um, well we've seen with films like The Quiet Girl that it's possible absolutely for, isn't, you know, isn't, even isn't it beautiful Irish, to yeah, see that it is it's amazing an Irish language film yeah. to be able to take its place on the world stage well no if you're going to talk about that I feel and I love that movie and I think Colin Farage did an incredible job and I'm a Gaelgore as well so you know I mean I have a particular interest in this in this field I think Tom O'Sullivan's Aroth I don't think without that any of this would have happened I think I think Aroth was an incredible film I think it's beautiful to look at same cinematographer Kate doing amazing work again Kate McCulloch um, Donald's central performance absolutely incredible what he did I mean you're, you're talking a world class performance there by Donald O'Reilly but Covid happened mm-hmm. and that st- it affected I, a lot I, of I the films that came yeah, out at that time I feel that that stole a little bit of momentum of that film because I I thought it was a beautiful film I really did and then when on Colleen Kuhn came along I kind of went brilliant at least this is getting the chance to get out there to get out into the world you know Yeah. and it's I mean it's oh my god at the end when she jumped into his arms oh my Jesus I was broken I was I was sitting with my wife and son in the Stella in Rathmines I was broken in two I, I, I couldn't even talk like it's such a beautiful film but I think that Tom's Aroth has to take some of the credit for breaking down the Irish language barrier a little before that and I think that that may have been lost slightly in the conversation which yeah. I, I just think that's an, just an incredible film as well yeah. there's, and there's some great stuff Fosca is a great film as well I haven't heard of that one yeah Fosca is another one and I, I think it's only a matter of, it's only a matter of time I mean they came up against All Quiet on the Western Front to be fair which yeah. is an epic you know if they hadn't if that film hadn't come out I think I think you could be looking at an Oscar like I think you could if people just loved it it was yeah. a love story that cinema goers post-Covid were wanting to see something beautiful and there it was in front of them yeah. and they didn't care what language it was in. It was just the most beautiful, simple story done beautifully. Well, I mean, if French cinema can win, yeah. you know, on an international stage, why not Irish cinema? Absolutely. I know that we don't have the 
chops in the same way as French cinema. It has a long history of... But look at the actors you have here who do speak Irish, for instance, right? So Brendan Gleeson is a Gaelgor. Um, Lorcan Cranage, mm. amazing actor, Gaelgor. Dennis Conway. You know, there, there's some... Don O'Haley. Like, you've brilliant, brilliant actors here who can speak in our native tongue. Why not put them all in a film? Why not give it a crack? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Let's 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 put marquee names in a movie and and go for it. And would you want like to be Osgwelga? The it's written in English, so no, because um, there's a, a thing that I did with it, which was it's written in Victorian English, and there's a reason why that is, and it it comes to pass in the script. So. Uh, no is the short answer but if somebody said if you translate that here's 10 million quid and you can make it yeah that's a different conversation of course well absolutely all you need is a paycheck <laughs> ah well <laughs> no and hopefully make a good film um so gavin o'connor it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today to chat to you about everything that's been everything that's happening and i want to just ask you one final question sure. which is What's next for you? What's next for me? So I just delivered a pass on a script and I am about to, uh, I think I'm going to start on another. Another uh, one. Yeah, I'm waiting yep. to hear back on a BBC job. And that's the thing about, you know, you know, being an actor is that, you know, we're constantly um, waiting in the wings in a way. Well, you're constantly auditioning and yeah. waiting to hear back on jobs and stuff. So I'm up for this BBC job at the moment. Um, I did a thing called the Hunt for Rowan Moat in England, which did very well. It was a real life story about this guy who went. It was an ITV drama, is that right? Yeah. 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 So it was like six million viewers in the UK, which is phenomenal. Absolutely. And that was a huge news story a few years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. So the thing about him, Rowan Moat, was he went on the rampage in Newcastle. Um, he came out of prison and he shot his ex-girlfriend, Sam Stobart, and her boyfriend, Chris Brown, shot him dead shot her and left her with life-threatening injuries and then went around hunting cops and shot a policeman called David Ratban in the face and blinded him um, with a shotgun and he ended up taking his own life. Um, so then he, he went on the run and the biggest manhunt in UK history ensued where people came from, you know, Greater Manchester Police, Northumbria, the Met, PSNI even came over, you know, and they all went hunting this guy. I suppose because at the time live news was becoming a thing Sky were covering it BBC were covering it so it was a live feed all day every day on Sky and uh, Gaza famously turned up at the um, in Rothbury at the site um, and he was told in Sharpish to, to get away I think Gaza was coming off a 72 hour coke bender and uh, he decided that he was the man to talk your man down from the ledge <laughs> with a shotgun under his chin you know yeah. you know logic and reason and accountability out the window with Gaza here but um so I got a call. So Colleen Crawford, who's amazing casting agent in, in, in the UK, who had seen me for a um, Ken Loach movie, another one, and remembered me. And the real life character in my thing is a guy called Steve Neal, who's from, uh, I'll tell you a funny story, I'm probably get in trouble for this, I don't care. Um, so uh, Steve Neal's from Bombridge, County Down, right? So he talks like that. And... Uh, when I, when I went over for the read-through, uh, someone of the honchos from ITV um, had heard me speaking in my normal Cork accent, you know, and he goes, oh my God, he goes, it's, it's, it's like listening to him. He goes, you're so like him. 
And I didn't have the heart to tell him that I couldn't be further away on the island of Ireland from your man, like from Cork to bloody Bambridge County down. So I just said, thank you very much. And fucking turned around and went the way, you know. But uh, it was just one of those moments where he just, just smile and go, look, I'm glad to have the job. But that, we filmed it in Leeds because the story is still quite sensitive in, in Newcastle. And we came at it from the perspective of the victims. So... Um, what we wanted to do was tell their story, not glorify this monster, which we didn't at all. I mean, we didn't. I, I'm, you know, and I think the reviews were very, very kind about that as well, you know. So I think we wanted to tell the victim stories, but it was one of those ones where there wasn't a massive fanfare about it because of the sensitivity of the story. But yeah. the public really tuned in, like mass. I mean, tenth of the UK population, like that's unbelievable. So it was what people wanted at the time. Yeah. yeah. So I'm hoping the BBC were watching and then they give me this job and then that'll answer the question, which is what's next? <laughs> it's really great. Well, let's send up a prayer to the acting gods Thank you. of BBC that they will come through for you this week. Thanks very much, Remy. Great to have you, Gavin. Lovely talking to you. Thank you so much. For Tech's Sake is a podcast that goes beyond the hype of tech developments to bring listeners the knowledge they need to make informed decisions. And it's hosted by me, Elaine Burke, a science and technology journalist. And me, Jenny Darmody, editor of Silicon Republic. Each episode, we're joined by an expert to answer our probing questions to discover what's good tech and what's just tech for tech's sake. And we've had some amazing guests this season, including roboticist Neve Donnelly. She was just named Woman of the Year in STEM by Irish Toddler. We also had Ireland's AI ambassador, Dr. Patricia Scanlon, Stripe CTO, David Singleton, and Bobby Healy, CEO of Irish drone company, MANA. And last season, we had Abiba Perhane, who was recently appointed to a UN advisory panel on AI. We certainly know how to pick them. And if you want to be in the know on tech, robotics, drones, AI, and what have you, on a deeper and more human level, be sure to subscribe. 